0: companies to be proactively transparent also benefit in terms of employer branding. The more companies are doing it, more companies will want to follow suit. More candidates will see transparent companies and then they ask other employees why aren't you transparent.
1: You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Stripe. Stripe is a financial infrastructure platform for businesses. Millions of companies from the world's largest enterprises to the most ambitious startups use Stripe to accept payments, grow their revenue, and accelerate new business opportunities. Headquartered in San Francisco and Dublin, the company aims to increase the GDP of the Internet. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're going to start covering a topic that many of you are struggling with at the moment, how to hire, how to retain, but also how to compensate. It's a tricky subject. And to talk about that subject, think of nobody better than the founder of Figures, a seed camp company, Virgil. Welcome. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm pretty good. I want to hear your story. Where it is that you started? What was your first job? And at some point you must have said, I need to start this company, Figures. Tell us about that moment.
0: With pleasure. So I have a bit of a weird background in the sense that I have a computer science degree to start with, and then I did a master's degree in human resources. Right? So very weird, kind of unique mix. And I started my career, in fact, in compensation, right? It's compensation, if you think about it's a good alignment between like the side of thing and the HR side of things. But then I progressed into more generalist HR roles. And overall, I did 11 years in HR An organization that kept on being smaller and smaller. So six years in organization of 30, 40K uh, employees, then Three years at Quiteo in a tank company then two years in a post-series a startup as a vp of people operations and why did i want to create figures this is back then when i was vp of people operation of a startup i was like i don't have any reliable market data when it comes to compensation as impact was huge on my day to day because anytime i was making out an offer to someone i was like hey Here's 60K for you as the senior data analyst. The person could say, no, I think the market is 70K. Well, 60K is really below market. And I was like, no, I think it's 60. I've asked my friends around, I think 60. And the person would be like, no, my cousin is earning 75K there. My other friend say he's earning 80K there. And I was stuck in endless negotiation loops. I had no options to try to gather data around by asking my HR peers, trying to look up online. But you get what you put in, right? If you get poor data in, ultimately you get quite a crappy... Uh, salary grid, the crappy compensation benchmark, and there's no trust in that, right? So I was stuck in endless negotiation. And I think it was even inefficient. It was also very, very unfair, right? Because it led to endless negotiation. And at the end of the day, when you do that, what do you reward? You reward more the negotiation ability from your candidates than their real impact or perceived or expected impact, right? So this is then that I reached out to a few of my HR peers, like, I, you must be tired of this as well, right? And they say, yep. I was like what if i start asking you for your employee compensation information i collect it into anonymized google sheets and then i give you back access to this google sheet of course you pay me a little bit because that's going to take some work and i'm going to sell you one year subscription to this google sheet that i'm going to update monthly this was october 2020 15 companies agreed to participate with some good flagship clients such as like conto payfield back market mano mano and so on right And instantly it gave good value to them and it kicked off network effects. So like then the next month I had 10 more companies joining in, next month 10 more companies. And this is when I realized that this should not be a Google sheet, right? We can do much, much better than an aggregated Google sheet. And this is why Bastien that became my co-founder joined as a CTO and started creating the first version of figures in early 2021, which was basically data visualization on top of this compensation database. It allowed our clients to be like, hey, how much is a senior product manager earning in Paris, in a series A startup. Yeah. And basically this was a core principle and I took on from there, but the basic principle was pretty simple. And everyone, every day I keep hearing, yep, makes total sense. Why didn't anyone build this? Which yeah. is a real question today. this day.
1: So anybody who's a data geek will probably be listening to this conversation and think, well, how do you manage to capture outliers, right? Because at the end of the day, garbage in, garbage out, you need to have a very reliable set of inbound data to have a good footprint. And there's tons of surveys out there. It doesn't always capture the extreme ends of both of the ends of the spectrum. So how do you guarantee, how do you have a good sense for the quality of the data?
0: It's a very good question. So we have to ask the client for it, right? We can guide the clients toward helping us normalizing the data, right? So we created... A job referential created a level's referential. I'm like, okay, tell us for each of your employees, what role do they have based on our referential? So they do the work of mapping their roles to us, their levels to us, and then we validate the data. Meaning that no data gets into our product and our database without us validating that it makes sense, right? And this is getting more and more automated, right? Especially because it's easy to spot those outliers. But the core principle is they map the data, we validate. And this is something that I think we'll keep on doing. I know AI, especially even last week's uh, chat GPT uh, stuff is getting very popular. But for now, I don't believe into fully automated, AI-driven kind of data normalization, because HR data can tend to be quite poor at times or kind of misleading. So I still believe in the value of having the clients normalizing the data with us.
1: Okay. All right. So there's an element of a human in the loop still for quality assurance. What sectors do you feel you have better confidence in and which ones do you feel still have much more progress to go?
0: I think we're super relevant for pre-IPO tech companies and when you think about it, the jobs are very, very standardized. So most of those companies have similar type of roles for developers, product manager, finance type of people and so on. We have over a thousand companies now in our database, even more than that. So we have many of those pre-IPO tech companies that were super, super strong on this. And then where are we less strong on is any of the very specific industry, like pharmaceutical industry, oil and gas, and so on. We have too little data for now to be relevant, but we hope we'll be someday. But right now we're hyper-focused into creating the best compensation benchmark for tech companies.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Look, it's always going to be the first mover industries, right? But I suspect that it'll trickle down because one of the things that we were talking about was this idea of the impact of pay transparency in companies. And so maybe love to hear what you think that impact is, whether it's long-term or whether it will cause a knee-jerk reaction. And then how do you think that will cascade across other sectors? Yes,
0: yeah, it's a super good question. So I think it's a longer term thing, but it's coming much faster than people anticipate for multiple reasons, right? First thing, from a legislative standpoint, what happens in the US for those who's been following like state of New York and California have made mandatory for companies to put salary ranges on job ads. In those locations right and i think this legislation is going to spread out to the rest of the world including eu and uk why because the whole purpose there is that asymmetry in information the fact that candidates have no idea what they could expect in terms of salary only benefits companies and only drive inequality fairness including in the gender pay gap and in fact we released a study months ago that showed that the more transparent companies are when it comes to pay the more little and narrow the gender pay gap is and in fact when you look at companies that are fully transparent it's a little portion of our client base it's like 10 percent fully transparent on individual salaries the gender pay gap when you look at the subset of companies is is nil non-existent right so more transparency in pay cause a reduction of unfairness and inequality so probably every country in the world will move towards that but that might take a few years to get done But what's happening in the U.S. is that U.S. employers that have subsidiaries in New York and California, they have to start being more transparent in terms of salary ranges and job ads for those states. They're like, if we do it for those two states, why not do it for the rest of the U.S.? And then you have international companies like, if we do it for the U.S., why not start doing it everywhere in the world? So what we will see happening is more and more companies being transparent, even in Europe. Indeed announced that they will ask their uh, companies publishing Indeed to show salary ranges and job ads, and if they don't, Indeed will provide an aggregated imperfect source of data in the place and lieu of the company. So that, we start pushing more companies to do it. And why is competitor X and Y being transparent and you aren't? So all those forces are coming and are converging towards the fact that relatively quickly, I think it's a matter of two years or three years from now, everyone will have salary ranges on job ads. So people have to start getting ready yeah. right now. And in fact, if anything, there's an opportunity once again in employer branding for the early adopters, right? For those innovators that do it right now. It will be lost if they wait a year or two to do it.
1: If you look at the last two, three years with a cynical eye, and you think because of all the power that uh, employees had over employers, because of the amount of cash that was pumped into the system and the growth required, and therefore the hiring sprees that were happening, do you think that we're going to see a reversion of that? So in other words, all these initiatives that are seemingly very employee-friendly, to reduce this information asymmetry. Do you think that we're going to go, now that there's some upcoming changes in the way that the economy is growing, particularly companies are becoming a little bit more cash conservative, do you think there's going to be a reversion, a regression, so to speak, to a less transparent era because the employers are actively trying to conserve capital and will try to reduce these levels of transparency?
0: I don't think so. Of course, there'll be maybe less push and less pressure to do it from a pure competitive standpoint right? But I think this is here to stay. Some of those pressure from a legislative standpoint and even the market standpoint to be more and more transparent, I think are there to stay. However, to your point, I think there's been a frenzy of employers to be like, what can I do to be more attractive to our top talent? I think the last two to three years, beside inflation in salaries, which was obvious, there's been a huge amount of companies like scrambling around saying, hey, what can we do from an employer's branding perspective? To attract more talent how can we open up remote work how can we move to four this work week how can we do this and that to be even more and more attractive to candidates i think this will slow down but i think lots of the changes have now become norm. Right. And I think to some extent, it's very tough to get rid of some of the benefits that had been implemented in the past just because the market is less tense. So I think there'll be less frenzy to be hyper competitive when it comes to salary, to be hyper competitive when it comes to benefits. Like the huge progress that has been done on those two topics the last few years, I think will calm down a little bit. But I don't think there'll be a reversion to what was in place three or four years ago that companies will start being transparent and so on.
1: I know that, well, the transparency is probably an easy one, but especially employee perks, right? I know that some of the large tech companies have gotten rid of things that were iconic in their perk programs now that they need to conserve capital. And they also need to make sure that they don't look like they're just spending money unnecessarily. But maybe you can give specific trends, what trends you've seen in terms of compensation levels in the last few months that showcase what happens when cash is more conservative, whether you've seen an impact when it comes to specific roles like engineering, marketing, sales. Just curious as to what trends you could showcase that are a function of the world that we're living in today.
0: Right. So first early all, signs that we seem to be showing is less outstanding offer on high end roles, like in the executive levels, compensation had gone crazy, right? When you compare compensation of executive, even at early stage company, you compare that from year on year, it's been inflating, it's been going up like crazy. That seems to calm down a little bit. And I think the same thing for individual contributor roles as well, high end roles, those type of roles seem to calm down in terms of the craziness that's what's happening there. That's the only trend that we see really visible right now. Overall, I think the impact on compensation will take a while to be visible on the market, right? Because if you take a snapshot on the market right now, what you're going to see is most people have had their salaries decided not in the last three months or six months, but a year ago, a year and a half ago or two years ago, and you can't reduce salaries, right? I'd be very curious to see if most countries allowed companies to easily reduce salaries how the market have moved, but that's not the case. So lots of companies are terminating, potentially uh, there's layoff and stuff like that, but they can't cut salaries by 15, 20% across the board. The so market will take time to regulate itself, right? Salaries are a bit of a lagging indicator. And it will take time to see clear, super visible uh, movement on the market based on the current environment. It will take months and months for that to be visible.
1: Have you seen any correlation in terms of the stated inflation figures that governments produce and salary inflation? So how, how are the two things correlating?
0: Yes, so in fact, we've seen that interesting in terms of leading indicators. We had a survey on planned salary increase budgets. And you know what? Turns out those planned salary increase budgets are not lower than years past. If finishing in some areas, like what we see in the UK or the US, they may be higher than what we had in years past. Why? Because of inflation, right? So once again, this is contradictory forces of one hiring freezes and layoffs, putting downward pressure on, on the market and on compensation. But then there's inflation putting upward pressure on the market. So what we see when we look at planned salary increases budget for the end of the year or early next year, they are not different than last year. In fact, in some areas, they're even higher. And second, most people don't realize that even companies going through layoffs and hiring freezes, they're still increasing their employees. Most of them are, right? If they have the choice between only laying off 15% of their population but having no cash to increase their current employees and laying off 20% of their population and freeing up a bit of budget for retention purposes to increase and retain their current employees, they always go for option B. In fact, best practices when you go through layoff is option B. You always need to have a pool of money and amount of money left to try to retain the remaining employees. And when we see the planned budget for next year, they're not lower than years past. So no, it's not as obvious as that that this current market will lead to much, much lower salary increases, at least in our world, right? Pre-IPO tech companies that still have an objective to retain tech talent, because despite the overall market, tech talent is still at the premium, especially in position like product, for example. There's still a huge need for that talent. So you don't want to lose it and just be like, I won't increase everyone because Market is pretty bad, so I want not increase one. That won't work. And there's very few companies going uh, doing that.
1: Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, let's move into some of the advice that you might be able to give with all this data, because you were just touching on one point there about retaining some cash to be able to compensate the people you don't lay off. And I'd love to hear any other recommendations you have. Specifically, you look at many compensation policies. And you probably can tell which ones are effective and which ones are not. Do you want to just maybe walk through some broad strokes as companies start thinking about their compensation plans, things that they can do to set the groundwork for a very good compensation plan?
0: Well, first of all, is setting one. A good chunk of companies that haven't set down compensation policy and compensation principles, it should start with, do you have a clear one? Do you know where you want to position yourself on the market? Is that a consistent positioning that you want to pay people at like the median or the 60th percentile? Or maybe you want to pay people at the median and some of your key roles at a given percentile, right? And I think that's the first point is being intentional about compensation policy. I love when I see companies being like, yep, we want to see if we want to pay at the median when it comes to cash. We want to be at market when it comes to equity. We don't want to be giving up more or giving up less. And we think however that our tech team is super keen in, um, in what we got the success of the company so we want to be more aggressive in terms of market pushing the tech team, so we're going to pay them as a the 75th percentile, right and this first of all competitive advantage actionable advice is create a compensation policy that makes sense for who you are who you want to be as a company in terms of culture in terms of just what you want to attain in terms of objectives right number two People overestimate the efficiency of some of their compensation and benefits policies. Like they say, we're going to put in place these benefits, we're going to do this, we're going to have a super interesting equity model. Equity is probably the best one in that topic. The topic of communication is often understated in companies. They will think about the policies, they will think about the salary and equity and benefits policy, but they won't take time to explain it well to employees. And they often overestimate the impact of those policies. Equity is the best example. Most funders are super excited by equity. I've met a huge chunk of funders that are like, I've created this amazing equity model. I'm giving equity to everyone based on a super nice model and so on that they've read based on the available literature that's often US-based. What they don't realize is that a good chunk of employees don't just understand equity at all. In fact, I think it's different per market, right? I think the overall U.S. market and U.S. employees are very, very mature about equity. I think U.K. might be number two, and I think the rest of mainland Europe might be number three, but are quite a distance free in terms of the U.K., right? A lot of companies in mainland Europe, founders way overestimate their understanding of equity. And when I talk to employees, I think the majority of employees in startups and scale-ups throughout mainland Europe don't understand what a stock option is. Like 100%. I'd say that on average, even I'd say 80% of people who hold stock options into those companies don't fully understand what a stock option is. And so that's one example of you can decide a very good compensation policy, a very good equity policy, equity model, who you're giving out to, how much, how do you handle like refreshers at promotion time and stuff like that. It'd be very irrelevant if you can't explain it well. And most companies clearly overestimate the retention and attraction power of their equity policy.
1: Okay, so we have two recommendations so far, right? We have being intentional about your compensation plan, and then yep. don't underestimate the understanding people have of their equity plan, even if you give it
0: to them yep. anymore. If you go into the benefits, I'm going to be boring, but it's still the same thing. I think you can be very intentional with benefits. You need to create benefits that's tied to who you want to be as an employer and who you want to be in terms of culture. If you think that work-life balance is important to you, yes, you can have a look at benefits in that area. That makes sense. Instead of throwing away benefits that people are requesting or you see some of your competitors do. I think this is a good area. Once again, to be very, very intentional about the whole thing. So, and I say overall, it's, the communication part is not only applicable to equities; it's applicable to everything. You need to set time to explain your compensation policy, give time to employees to ask questions and understand. Then there's some quick cause or wins like that that are very tactical. But for example, I've seen companies, let's have a look at referral premium, right? Giving a referral bonus to everyone who refers someone to your company. Some companies I know have done something like, hey, if either we give you out this bonus, either we double it if you want to spend it into personal development stuff for you as an employee. It's quite smart if you think about it, right? Either you get 4K, either you get 8K in personal development, coaching, and so on. It's a win-win. First of all, you don't have to pay employer costs into the training cost you spend. So in fact, it doesn't cost you twice more to do that. Plus it will really benefit the employee. It will really indirectly benefit you, and so on, which I think is a very smart move. Or I've seen some companies that are doing that with saying, either you get it, either we pay double and we donate it to the association of first choosing. Same thing, very smart good message, and also quite efficient from a tax perspective because often those are deductible, right? So those are two very tactical things that I've heard recently about companies taking the extra step of, once again, what can we optimize, what good message can we send through our type of benefits we can implement and so on.
1: Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, I, I'm going to ask you the inverse of the same question. You are often out in social events with other founders and you're at dinners and at parties. And I assume that you get into conversations over a drink or two and somebody opens up to you and says, hey, this is my biggest fear. Like they secretly tell you their fear as CEO, founder, about hiring or anything having to do with what we just spoke about. So what is the biggest fear that you often hear that isn't actually a real fear and that the data shows is actually a wrong stereotypical fear
0: to have? Yeah, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's paid transparency, right? A lot of them are like, you know what? I'm not ready for paid transparency. I have some skeletons in the closet that I don't want people to know, right? There's some people that I've overpaid when they entered my company and I don't want everyone else to know. And in some cases, they're right because, like, paid transparency is going to expose some of those decisions. Paid transparency makes you a lot more accountable about your decisions. So I've seen a lot of them being not ready for this paid transparency thing, not ready to expose some of the decisions I've made. But however, I think to your second point, I think many companies that move progressively towards that, I've seen very few that ultimately regretted. And when you talk about pay transparency, there's like multiple steps, like being transparent about your policy, being transparent about your salary grade, your salary ranges, and then there's being transparent about individual salaries. Everyone knows who earns what. This last step, I wouldn't advise it to many people. I know a few companies that went there and then retreated back. I know, in fact, a few companies that wanted to go there, pulled their employees, and majority of the employees says, you, you know what? I don't want to be a fully transparent company. Either because they didn't want others to know their salary, but also because, and most people don't realize that, they have some employees being like, I don't think I want to know what others are making because it make me feel bad. I'd rather not know some others and make way more than yeah. me, So no, I don't want to be a transparent company. Yeah. So the last chunk of paid transparency, I wouldn't advise it to everyone. We're a fully transparent company as figures. And it comes along with some challenges, right? But the first two steps... Everyone who's went through those, who tidied up their closet a little bit, trying to clean up some of their legacy decisions, and then were transparent with employees, all of them expected a barrage of questions, people coming up with pitchforks. None of that happened. I have a good bunch of companies that went through this process, started being more transparent salary managers, explained the why, sat down, took questions from employees, and turns out that now we have like good data to show that it's very beneficial to you, the level of trust you create with your employees, and those downside of some of the tough conversations that it leads to are really negligible compared to the upside. So I think no. pay transparency is the number one thing they're scared of. However, most of them shouldn't be too scared of if they do it well.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Well, I think there's one more skeleton in the closet when it comes to pay transparency. And I warned you, I was going to ask you this question. So one of the biggest challenges in a remote work and a, in a remote employee is do you pay global or do you pay local? And everyone struggles with it. Everyone has this fear and feeling. And I'm going to add a little bit more layers to this and then you feel free to tackle them. And I can remind you of these layers, but you have an explosion of services like boundless and deal and remote, and that further compounds things. What advice do you give to founders who are trying to figure out whether they should be one pay scale globally or to compensate relative to local purchasing power and local currencies And then how do you deal with that in light of an ever-increasing fractured workplace where some are actual employees in one geography, others are contractors through a service like remote or boundless? would love to hear your thoughts there.
0: First of all, you're very right to mention that when it comes to pay transparency because some of the companies I know were free transparent on pay, moved away from it when they started being global because when some of the French employees saw how much they were paying their San Francisco-based counterparts, it made them sick to their stomach. And it's a bit of what I've seen at Criteo at the time. It was very tough to justify differences in pay and in fact differences in equity between an amazing French engineer and an engineer in San Francisco. So I'm very right that this Like being global makes pay transparency a harder task. Now, but to your point, as the first thing, is I say, I don't think there's ultimate fair answer to this one, right? Most people think and a lot of, I guess, US-based, San Francisco-based companies are like, oh, the only fair thing is like global pay. There's no other option than global pay and so on. I think it's very easy for them to say that. I'm going to get back to that, but I think there's no ultimate truth in fairness. Is fairness giving and paying the same thing regardless of location? Or is fairness giving out the same purchasing power and spending income as per the role someone is having, right? You could be saying option A, you could be saying option B. I think you could make the case for both, right? And I don't think that the ultimate, most fair thing to do is a global pay one. So I think what we see is like localized pay is still the norm. It's still being very prevalent. It moved away from being localized at the city level to more localized at a country or sometimes continental level to recognize for this uh, less and less borders type of workplace thing, right? So we see more and more companies moving away from, okay, we're not going to pay differently. Someone in Paris and Marseille, for example, or London, the countryside, we're going to have a UK national salary grade that's applicable for everyone in the UK indexed on London markets most often. This is becoming more and more. The norm. sometimes doing a continental approach, which is we pay everyone in Europe, London based rates, everyone in Asia, Singapore, everyone in North America, SF and San Francisco rates and stuff like that. And this is becoming much more of the norm. in the global pacing. Once again, it's easy to think about it when you're a California based company with California based revenues. Yeah, it's very easy. But when people are doing that, like, okay, you're a company out of Italy doing that. What happens when you start to You pay everyone Italy rates. What happens when you open offices in San Francisco? You can't pay them Italian rates, right? You have to pay them San Francisco rates if you want to be attractive. Then what? You're gonna increase everyone in Italy to San Francisco based salaries to stay true to your world? I think that's a lot trickier, right? So I think when you're being very, very pragmatic about the whole thing, it's a so easy for companies to do that whereas based into areas where they have the highest salaries and highest revenue. But when you're not, global pay is most of the time unrealistic type of thing to implement.
1: but how have this explosion of remote work services affected that? Because now you have hyper fragmentation of this. So it might not be that you have a continent like the Italian one and the California one you might have like five hundred different little countries and none of them equal to San Francisco, but they're not equal to each other either. What have you seen best practices there?
0: So it's funny because we've seen people using the services, but still aligning comp. On one location. So it says, OK, you can go wherever you want, but we're hiring, we're hiring you based on Germany type of rates. You can go live wherever you want. We'll use deal, we'll use remote or a HR to hire you, but we're still paying you Germany rates, right? Yeah. One thing that, so when you, you go through those services, sometimes you, you treat them as employees because they become indirect employees of Sure. Sometimes they're pure contractors. Mm-hmm. When they're pure contractors, The good thing about contractors and freelancers right now is that, and this is changing progressively, and most companies still being dealt with in two different ways between employees and freelancers and contractors, right? So they're sometimes a bit siloed, which enables you to pay a contractor that's much higher than what you pay your employees. But because they're different stages, because they're different, managed differently, because they're not in the same system. In fact, most of the time they're not seen in the HR management system. You don't have some of the same. Fairness and internal fairness and internal equality issue because, oh, it's just a contractor. It's just someone from working far away as a contractor, right? So that enables companies to have less of a struggle to justify internal fairness when they're saying, oh, we just go that there's a contractor. He's been in Lisbon. Oh, yes, he's being paid London salary, but, you know, it's a weird case. He's being contractor out there and so on. So that helps company having some of those outlier cases managed as well.
1: Yeah. I think the other area where it's also gets confusing is how to compensate equity for these quasi-employees. And first of all, with equity, do you find that it works independent of local pay versus global pay? In other words, do you feel that there's a disconnect between if you were a developer, for example, globally, you would get the same equity range? Or do you feel that the local global thing applies equally to equity? Are they more independent?
0: It's a super good point. So I think that uh, on average, most people still try to localize equity practices, right? But especially for people who have branches in the US, like this in terms of equity in California, so damn different than they are in Europe, especially you mentioned Romania or Croatia, who is booming at the moment with like an, of, of people being employed there, that you way, way, way above market if you give the same type of equity grant to someone in Croatia than it would be in the US. In fact, I know a few companies that started out with a common global so they localize salary, but they say, but in terms of equity, it doesn't make sense to localize equity because everyone has the same part to play into the future success of the companies who want a global equity range. Most move the way because they felt like was throwing money out of the window because we were way above market in most areas of the world if you have U.S. branches. And once again, you are giving that to people who barely understand equity. And you could give them out 10K worth of stock option or 100K would have the exactly same impact. So most people moved away from that. But moreover, one other point on that is that's an absolute nightmare for most companies. Give away equity at an international level in areas in which they don't have branches. When they use contractor services, remote management companies such as the Oyster and the like, it's an absolute nightmare. For most companies, for US-based companies, it's a bit simpler, but for anyone based in Germany, or based in France, this equity uh, beyond-border thing is an absolute nightmare, and I don't see it being solved at the moment. I'd be curious to see if you've seen some uh, ways to tackle that, but I haven't seen anything.
1: Yeah, it is an interesting marker. And actually, I don't know if you capture that in figures at the moment. Do you capture the equity as well as the comp? Or-
0: We've started capturing the equity manually to start with, but it's been very tough to normalize that information. So now we started building integration, like we have an integration with Legi, for example, and they're looking to build integration with more cap management system. What we're suffering from is a lack of maturity in the market when it comes to a capital management system, right? When you look at the portion of our clients that have in place a capital management system, this is super low. And as like our compensation data comes from HR management system, so it's like real time, very qualitative. But if we can't rely on capital management system for equity data, our data sets will be always poor. So in fact, we're yeah. quite dependent on capital management system becoming much more prevalent in Europe. In fact, it's once again super different from the U.S., right? In the U.S., everyone has like Poulet or Carta from day one in their company. In Europe, nearly no one has capital management from day one. And we hope that will change because this will give us access to qualitative data sets. In the meantime, it's tough to build a good equity benchmark.
1: Yeah, uh, and it's a complicated subject course. too because it's not just ownership yep. stake. It's also a strike price. It's also yep. there's, when you leave, a good leave or bad leave. There's so much yep. little details that can shape it. Well, I wanted to give you an opportunity to leave the audience on a uh, inspiring note. And uh, we've talked a lot about transparency, the benefits of it, the boundaries of it, which is actually very important. You said where there's three stages and where not to cross. But I just wanted to leave you with an opportunity to, I know that we're living in tricky times where there's more of a contraction still happening before an expansion happens again. But what advice would you give to either employees listening to this, wondering about what their companies could do better, founders who are struggling with this internally in light of all the changes and pressures they're having what words of inspiring wisdom would you leave
0: with i'm not sure if such inspiring wisdom but i think once again because of everything that you said there's a lot of incentives to get compensation right from the get-go right i think a few years ago maybe you've seen that compensation creating a salary grid, was something you do when you had like 80 90 employees right i think this can't fly anymore and companies that still act that way will be punished by those practices but in a more positive note, it means that mm-hmm. I see many more founders now t- tackling the topic of how do I set up a fair and efficient compensation policy and compensation practices from the very first moment onwards, right? How do I define a very simple leveling matrix that allow me to have a good basis for what I should offer people very early on? And I'm actually very encouraged by that. And I think there's a huge incentive to do that from the get-go. Because I think those companies will have much less, once again, skeleton in the closet moving forward, much less efficiency and ability to attract and retain candidates based on the level of trust that we create on the compensation part, right? Because once again, when you're not being fair, not being transparent, you can breach that trust between you as an employer and an employee. And the other way around, when you're being, you try to be transparent, you try to be honest, you create a type of trust that's super rewarding and can be super efficient when, in terms of attraction and retention. So my first thing is structure it very early on think about your compensation principle, think about your compensation policy. It sounds big company-ish, it sounds kind of boring, it sounds tricky, it sounds complex, it's not that complex and it's a lot more easy to implement it when you have one, two, three employees than when you have 80. And if you get it right from the first moment onward, I think you're saving yourself a lot of headache uh, down the road.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks for the words of wisdom. And for those of you listening, thank you for joining us. Until next time, guys. Take care Bye-bye.